New York is undeniably a magical city, with its rich history, towering skyscrapers, and plethora of things to do. But it's also magical in a literal sense. The legendary magician Harry Houdini honed his crafts of illusion here, and he often used the city as a backdrop to heighten the drama. In more recent times, magician David Blaine performed jaw-dropping stunts in high-profile New York City locations. Back in 2000, he spent more than 60 hours encased in a block of ice in Times Square. Remember that? Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's Cityscape, we're talking with a couple of guys behind New York City's longest-running off-Broadway magic show, Monday Night Magic, Michael Chout and Todd Robbins. Michael, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Todd, welcome to you. It's it's good to be here. So how long has Monday Night Magic been going on now, Michael? We started on June 23rd, 1997, which means we... Oh, oh you're not going to make people do math, are you? <laughs> <laughs> we're in our 20th year. We're coming up on our 20th anniversary. We'll be 20 years old in June. What inspired you to start Monday Night Magic? Wow. I knew that New York... Um, had a void in, in magic. Mostly magic had closed in 1993, and there was no place that people could go to see great magic. And almost as important, there was no place that magicians could go to perform great magic. Now, why had magic faded in New York City? I mean, New York City was home to Harry Houdini. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deflect well, the, to Todd Robbins, my there's illustrious been, coal producer. There's been a number of venues through the years. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a place called the Magic Townhouse that Michael performed at. And, uh, and then Mostly Magic that he mentioned came along in, in Greenwich Village. And what happened was uh, it, it stood out and then uh, as a wonderful place to go for variety and magic and all kinds of and comedy. And then the comedy boom came in, and there were so many clubs out there, and mostly magic kind of got lost, and it, it closed down. And, you know, especially in, in Manhattan, it's always a factor of real estate. Uh, even during our tenure, we have moved from theater to theater, and many of the theaters that we were in are no longer around. We started at the Sullivan Street Playhouse, where the Fantastics were for 42 years, and it's now condos. And now you are where? We're at the Players Theater on McDougal Street in Manetta, and we've been there for a number of years, and it looks like we're going to be there for quite a while longer. It's one of the early off-Broadway houses, and it's just right there in the, in the thick of things between West 3rd and Bleecker on McDougal Street. Right, right between the Comedy Cellar, which is mm-hmm. now iconic, and mm-hmm. Café Wa, which is even more iconic. So right there in the heart of Greenwich Village, right next to NYU. What kinds of acts do you feature? Every week it's six sometimes seven different performers. Uh, We would like to say that it's harder to perform at our show as a magician than any other venue in the United States. Why is that? Uh, We have a talent committee second to none, and we don't play uh, favorites. Yeah, there's no politics involved. We just want to put the best magic possible on our stage. It's a very simple showcase uh, format. We have an uh, opening act that does about 15 minutes, a middle act that does about 25, the MC does a, a little bit of a bit of some kind, and then after intermission, which is filled with magic, with people doing close-up magic, intimate sleight of hand for the members of the audience, uh, then we have our headliner, who usually does about 45 or 50 minutes, and uh, the result is just a wonderful evening of magic in the most amazing city in the world. The interesting thing and the different thing about our format 
than I think any other format um, is that we mix stage magic with close-up magic. We actually have, as Todd uh, uh, described, magicians that mingle with the audience throughout the theater during intermission, so the magic never stops. And my original thought was that I wanted people, everyone, to viscerally feel like they had been part of it, and that brings that together. And no matter what theater we've been in, we've been in nine over 19 and a half years, we've always had the close-up magic and made it work. And um, it's a, if you read our reviews online, you'll see that people really love it. So, Michael, what tricks do you perform that are the biggest crowd pleasers, would you say? My, um, I do a prediction um, in every show um, that's pretty unreal. Um, I, I ask perfect strangers questions, people I've never met, and uh, at the end of the show... On the wall, there's an envelope with the date on it, and when they rip open the envelope, they see the answers to the questions that I've asked them. And there's no possible way that I could know. These are It's in an envelope. Within an envelope, the envelope is stapled around, and um, somehow I manage to get it right every week. Now, I guess I can't ask you how you do it because a magician never reveals his or her tricks, right? Well, you can ask. We just won't tell. Well, <laughs> and if we did tell you, we'd have to then kill you, and we like you too much. Now, Todd, you yeah. don't only perform magic. You also do sideshow acts. Yeah, I uh, started in magic and then have sort of branched out. I've always had a love of all sorts of arcane forms of popular entertainment and have bounced around from a number of different things. Uh, worked with the Big <laughs> Apple Circus for quite a while and uh, um, worked out in Coney Island at the sideshow there and and like I say, I've been involved with Monday Night Magics from the very beginnings as one of the producers alongside with Michael here. So it's fun to kind of uh, be sort of a general practitioner when it comes to entertainment. You eat light bulbs and you also drive nails up your nose. Yeah, it seems like a good idea at the time. Yeah. <laughs> How does one start doing that? Uh, well, in regard to... Um, Eating glass, you swallow your pride and everything else goes down easily. <laughs> I learned how to do it from old sideshow performers. I mean, that's really the dynamic that everyone, almost everyone uh, of our age, our generation, uh, came along and learned in real apprentice uh, mentor or apprentice and, and mentor dynamic. We all learned things. We had a partner who unfortunately is no longer with us named... Um, um, Frank Brentz. Frank and Frank was an older performer who inspired all of us. And hopefully what we're doing will inspire another generation. It's not about just seeing things on YouTube and learning things. It is a one-to-one -one, uh, dynamic. And that's how I learned the sideshow. That's how I learned uh, magic and all the other things. Was magic something that interested you as a kid and that just yeah. grew as you got older? Yeah, and it's amazing how many people have a, a very similar story. I think just about almost every... Uh, guy listening to this of a, of a certain age uh, flirted with magic at one time because it's just such a cool thing as your life is developing from those ages of 7, 8, 9, 10 up until, uh, you know, your teenage years. There's just something that is kind of cool about magic and you want to learn some card tricks and then you discover as you go into puberty that women really aren't that happy with deception. There's enough of it in their lives, and so being tricked intentionally uh, is not that entertaining. And so a lot of people drift away. But there's been a lot of magicians through the years who have kept it uh, as part of their their lives and, and maintained it 
even though they didn't do this professionally. Uh, there are a number of folks, Woody Allen, Dick Cavett, uh, Ace Greenberg, who was the head of Bear Stearns, uh, and so many others down the road, including Neil Patrick Harris, is mm-hmm. uh, still very much a... And- uh, a practitioner and Jason and, Alexander mm-hmm. from Seinfeld, yeah, and Stephen Sondheim did magic as a kid hmm. yeah, as well. I, yeah. I know because I performed for him. Is that right? Yeah. So, Michael, I guess magic came to you as well when you uh, were a kid. I was eight. You were eight. Um, my dad took me to Macy's. There was a magician performing at Macy's, and I actually—I don't know if Todd knows this, but I found out recently who the performer was. I didn't know the name, but he—he he unfortunately passed away way too young. But he was a friend of Gil Eagles, mm. and he was doing a um, Svengali deck pitch at Macy's during the Christmas season. And uh, I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I had to, uh, um, I begged my dad to get me, he bought me my first magic trick. I think we'd be remiss though if we didn't mention our other partners. Oh yes. Um, So uh, I I will say that when I started Monterey Magic back in in 97, I, I knew the first show we did, it was sold out. And people said, you can do it again. And I did it a month later. And I was sort of stuck. So I called... Peter Samuelson. Peter is our um, co-producer as well. Now, um, I hadn't seen Peter since the days I had performed with him at mostly, I mean, at at the Magic Townhouse, which was 1979, 80. And um, he immediately, I didn't even tell him. I just said, I'm doing a show. It's going to be, it was in the village. We started at the Sullivan Street Playhouse where the Fantastics was. And um, would you, you know, come and perform? And he didn't ask how much. Well, all he said is, what, what time and where do I, I, I show up? And um, and then Peter recommended uh, Jamie Ian Swiss. And Jamie is a world-renowned magic advisor and writer. And, and Jamie recommended Todd. And I, I have to tell this story because it's so cute, I think. Um, I When he described Todd to me, I thought he was another performer I had seen on the Johnny Carson show. I, I was not familiar, at the, as I thought, with Todd. So I, I called up Todd, and uh, I said, uh, I was trying to act like a big shot. I knew absolutely nothing. These guys are amazing. I'm the, the child of the group. And um, I said, uh, is there something I might have seen you do? And he said, well, have you ever been to the Big Apple Circus? And I said, yeah, sure, I have. And, uh, and he said, did you see the Medicine Man show? And I said, yeah, actually, that was the one I saw. And he said, I was the Medicine Man. Hmm. And I proceeded to drop the phone. Because that was the night that I met Paul Newman for the first time and Todd and another gentleman by the name of Barry Lubin, who was grandma in the Big Apple Circus. And um, I was more intimidated by, but not because they were mean, but by their skill. You know, Todd made 4,000 people feel like they were in his living room. And Barry was amazing. And I was more nervous meeting them that evening than Mr. Newman, who I ultimately met and became friendly with. Um, later on and year, years later. So, so, Todd, what was the role of the medicine man? Well, every year the Big Apple Circus uh, did a th- different theme. And though there was really only one ringmaster at the circus and it was Paul Binder, the fi- founder, <coughs> there was someone that, that would function in that role. And the year uh, that we did the medicine show, uh, they hired me to be sort of the ringmaster, and it was the medicine the the pitchman the uh, the guy who was running the medicine show and talking about the wonder tonic you know for coughs colds rheumatism lumbago corns bunions chilblains whiteheads redheads and dumbheads uh, and it was just this fun rolling variety show that was set in this mythical town in Ohio and the, it comes to town and the show and rolls in and 
and we had our lovely wagon that I rolled in on the top of, and uh, instead of because it was a circus, instead of a uh, a horse drawing the wagon, we had a, a baby uh, African elephant that pulled it in, and so it was just this fun rollicking show that was very very well received, and it was great to be part of that organization. Now but, I understand, Todd, yeah. that you actually got married on the stage of Monday Night Magic. Yes. I proposed to my wife while ringmastering a circus in Sarasota on New Year's Eve. I literally stopped the show, dragged her into the ring, got down on one knee and proposed to her. And she foolishly said yes. Now, full disclosure, uh, she was our production manager at Monday Night Magic. And it's very important, you know, being a producer of the show, being a boss, to not fraternize with the staff, so I asked her out, and uh, oh, yeah, there's yeah. more to the story. Yes, there is much more to the story, but this is a short interview. Uh, the, the I had a little bit to yeah, do with you it. Did. Well, you yeah, did. you did. You brought us together. Matchmaker, matchmaker. I, huh? I did, and and by the way, I I gave her. I met Krista, his wife, um, his better half for sure. Oh, please. Um, uh, in nineteen, I think it was. Uh, let's see, we started in June. It's probably. Um, about two months prior or so, or so at a magic conference in D.C. And she said, I'm going to come to New York. And she was this, she still is, but this cute, adorable, she's 22 mm-hmm. at the time. And um, she was so cute. And I said, hey, I'm starting a show, you know. And, and she actually called the day after we opened when I realized I was just completely out of my, my realm. And she came um to help out, to work for us. And she did literally did the job of three people. And I can tell you that because when she left we to had, move on to the things, we had to hire three people, hire three people <laughs> to replace her. Um, but the good news out, out of out of what it is that, that Todd and Krista got each other. So And Penn and Teller presided over well, the it ceremony? Was, it was, yeah, it was a whole variety show that involved uh, burlesque, magic, puppetry, Wild West arts, uh, and Melvin Burkhart, the last of the old great sideshow performers. The original human blockhead. And that was the first, and I emceed the show, and it was at the Solomon Street Playhouse where we did Monday Night Magic. We did it in the afternoon before the show. And even Robin Leach. And Robin, yeah, Robin mm. Leach crashed the uh, the wedding and, <laughs> and tried to kidnap me. Uh, <laughs> he tried to save him. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, uh, and then the second half was the actual ceremony, which was presided over by our... Uh, uh, a New York Street State Supreme Court justice who was an amateur magician, and we had spoken word that we wanted things read, and it was done by Pendulette. So it was a lovely, and then we had the reception at a uh, former speakeasy on the Lower East Side. That's fantastic. Yeah. What a memorable event. Yeah, huh? it was fun. We had our, our wedding cake, and I cut it with a sword and then swallowed it. Uh, the, the sword, not the cake. <laughs> Now, both of you said that you were turned on to magic as kids. You said that mm-hmm. that is typically the pattern. What about today? Well, are young people th- being turned many, on by magic? There are many paths to magic these days. There's a number of kids who uh, see YouTube videos, and they either see the special effects things that are done that look magical, but you know you can't be done without uh, tr- camera tricks, or they see people performing, and sometimes uh, there are people who will perform a trick and then r- reveal it. Sometimes they teach it, but mostly it's like, oh, look, see, I know the secret. I know the secret. And the fact is, that's not the secret. The working of a trick is never the secret. What is the real secret is using that to instill a sense of wonder 
in people who are watching, exciting their imagination. That's the real magic of magic. And you can learn the mechanics. There are instructional videos on YouTube. There's a number of companies around that have downloads where you can download a trick or, or a whole series of tricks or lectures that are done online. Uh, and yet the best way is going to a brick-and-mortar operation. And we're very fortunate in New York here. We have two wonderful uh, ones in Manhattan and a number of them uh, in the outlying areas. Uh, Tannen's Magic, first and foremost. It's been there the longest. has a wonderful staff and a wonderful selection. Phantasma Magic uh, also has a, a great selection. And that is the home of Roger Dreyer, who owns it his private collection, the mm-hmm. Houdini Museum. And if you have any... Uh, you know, anything of the history of magic, walking in there and seeing these priceless artifacts on display up close and personal is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And also out in Queens, there's Rogue's Magic Shop. And in, like I say, a few others around. Uh, Richie Magic Shop up in up in Westchester is another one. And so there are these places where you can go and they can <clears throat> show you and you can see it live. And someone will show you what it's all about, not just the working, but really how to make the magic happen. How much has technology changed the magic scene, or at the end of the day, is it all about still those basic tricks? I, I would lie if I would tell you that there isn't technology in, in magic today. It, it's it, Although it's interesting, um, in Todd's, by the way, I wanted to mention, um, we, we didn't talk about Play Dead, which was the show that Todd starred in, how many years ago was it? Uh, well, we did it out in... Los Angeles in, in uh, 13 and 14. Uh, and then the year before that, yeah. they were here in New mm-hmm. York at the Players Theater where we are right now, actually. And it was remarkable. And one of the things that Todd did in his show was he floated a light bulb. And the light bulb, when when did that originate? I know Blackstone Sr. did it. Yeah, but it was... It was before that. It was Berlin before Hall, that. Right? Yeah, it was back, back to the turn of the century, basically, when light bulbs became a common uh, item. Uh, people started doing magic with them. So imagine... In, in 1900, you're out watching a magic show, and a light bulb floats out over the audience. Yeah. In 1900. Today, yeah. they think whatever they think, but this was technology that was available in, in those days. Mm-hmm. And, and the irony of it is we use basically the same technology to do the trick all these years later. And we also included in that show some cutting-edge technology that people don't quite know about. Uh, to accomplish some uh, amazing things. So it's fun to kind of keep ahead of things. It, technology has always <laughs> been a, um, an important element. There was a wonderful magician, the father of modern magic, Robert Houdin, who used technology. He was a watchmaker. And whereas most magicians would come out in long robes and have these tables draped to the floor with someone underneath, you know, the, the caricature of someone shoving the rabbit into the hat from through the table. Well, that was, that was reality in, in Robert Houdin's day, re- predating him. And what he did is, because of his background as a watchmaker, he could take clockwork and do the same thing as a hidden uh, assistant and do it uh, in a table that was very thin. It looked like something that was from a nice living room, uh, some, an upscale home, as opposed to something draped to the floor. And that technology and the other things that he would learn about allowed him to do things that seemed miraculous because they were so free of any kind of seemingly trickery or deception and allowed him to then focus on the presentation and taking it 
to the level it was of true amazement. Speaking of amazement, Michael, I understand you have a trick called the card on the ceiling I trick. Do. Yeah. When I was in my 20s, I uh, was performing in Aspen. And I was doing great. The crowd was awesome. And someone said to me, but do you do the card on the ceiling trick? And I said, what are you talking about? And they took me in the other room of the venue where I was performing. And in the, it was, there was an, a, it was an A-frame. In the apex of the A, there was a card stuck perfectly 40 feet up to the ceiling. And I said, well, that's stupid. Someone went and they put it up there with a ladder. And the person said, no, let me describe what I saw. And they said, someone picked a card. They signed the card. The card was shuffled in the deck. A couple of rubber bands were put around the deck, and the deck was hurled in the air. And the person's card stuck to the ceiling, and the, gar- the, car- the cards fell to the- into the magician's hands, minus one, which was left in the air. And I said, my God, I have to learn that trick. And they said, well, the guy that does it is in um, Aspen. Um, his name was Jeff Edmonds. And uh, uh, I-, I went into town, and I found him. And in true magician fashion, magicians don't give up the goods. Hi, I'm a magician. Tell me your trick. It doesn't happen that way. So he said to me, if you're really interested in that magical effect, it's written in a book. So I went back. I got the book. I worked on it for four years. And four years later, I went back out to Aspen and met Jeff Edmonds again. And this time I had enough of the goods on it. And we worked on it together. And, and yes, it's become a signature effect that I've been doing, a magical effect that I've been doing for over 30 years. Would you say that there are certain characteristics of a magician that you see in each other, that it takes a certain person to be a magician, to master what you do? Well, I think when you get down to the basics of all magic tricks, uh, they're all stories. I mean, all of life is a story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. And I think that's part of the appeal of magic is that a magic trick has a story. A card is selected, a card is lost, and then the card is found by throwing the deck onto the ceiling, and miraculously the, that card jumps out of the deck and adheres itself to, uh, uh, to the ceiling uh, beyond reach. And you really have to have the ability to tell a story. Uh, whether it is verbal or nonverbal, it's still that beginning and middle and end, communicating with your fellow man, and getting this this message, this point across. I will, I will also like to add, in 2001, I was lucky enough to spend some time with one of Todd's mentors, uh, Jay Marshall, the great Jay Marshall. And Todd will tell you anything you want to know about Jay. Um, we were at a magic conference in uh, Portugal at uh, the FISM conference, which is the Federation International Symposium of Magic. It happens, it's the Olympics of Magic. It happens every three years. There were 2,000 magicians, and we were heading from one venue to the other. Jay at the time was, what, was he in the late 80s probably? Mm-hmm. Late 80s. It was 100 degrees out. We're walking, and he's clearly sweating, and he, he, he perspiring, and he looked pale. And I said to Jay, are you okay? Would you like me to get you a, a cab? Because we're all walking about a mile from the venue to the river to take a boat up the river to another venue. And Jay looked at me, smiled with the smile of a 12-year-old, and he said, are you kidding? I'm having a great time. And that's one of the qualities of a magician. They never grow up. Mm-hmm. We're, we're always going to be children. And I, I think that 
you know, people say to me, what do you do for a living? And I say, I, I turn adults into kids again. Mm-hmm. And that's what magic does, and that's one of the gifts that we have, and, and that's something that I think that draws all of us to the art. Much different than being an insurance salesman, which you once were, right? Oh, you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> I was, indeed, but I, I was a holdout. I always did magic um, for my clients. I was known as the magic guy, but yeah. Who's your audience at Monday Night Magic? Who comes out to see you? Everyone. Everyone? From 8 to 80. Yeah, it's a lovely mix of people, uh, from seasoned theater goers to tourists to... New Yorkers that are just looking for something kind of new and different. And and the the great thing is that at least 30 or 40% of our crowd every week are return visitors because every week our show is different. We have six, sometimes seven different performers each week. And you could the theme, theory was you could come six weeks in a row and see six completely different shows, um, different MCs, different performers on stage, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's great. And, and again, I... Go to TripAdvisor, go to Yelp, read our reviews. It's, I'm, I'm always so flattered. Go to Facebook um, that people really like what we, what we do. Well, mostly go to MondayNightMagic.com. <laughs> there you go. Did either of you come equipped with the magic trick today? Oh, well, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to. You do. I, I got something for you. Now, yeah. um, let's describe that, that George is sitting across a table from me. And once I'm going to, I have a, a, I brought a die with me. Yes. And once I hand it to you, there's probably very little way that I could actually see what you're looking at. But right. I'm okay. Let me reach over here. Okay. Here we go. So the die in my hand. Please check out the die. Look at it. Yes. And you'll see that it has all six sides. It does. And if you want to check that it's a real die, you could roll it a couple of times mm-hmm. and see that it comes up with different numbers. Yep. I have a six. Okay, so leave it on the table just for a second. A two. Okay. And you're looking at a number two, yes? Right. Mm-hmm. And you saw different numbers every time you rolled it? Correct. Great. If you put your hand over it, there'd be no way I could see the, the number two, correct? Well, right, right, right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what I want you to do is I want you to take the die in your hand. I'm going to turn away so there's no way I could see what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I want you to th- pick one of the numbers. Put the number down on the table. So there's not going to be any arguments about it. Put the die down on the table, and the number that's heading towards the ceiling will be the number that you chose. So there's no way you can change your mind. I'm going to turn away. You'll put your hand over it, and then um, either Todd or myself will try to figure out what number you've chosen. So I will turn away. Todd, turn away as well. Oh, okay. (laughs) And go ahead, pick a number, and just put it down. All right, so I have a number in my head. I'm not rolling the die again, right? Just have a number in my head. No, no, you can Um, roll the die. I can? Yeah, Yeah, roll the die. What the heck? Okay, now put my hand over it. Yeah. Okay. Look at the number. Now I'll look at the number. Yep. Okay. And then put your hand over it. Okay. I want you to concentrate on the number. Now, I think it's sort of interesting because you could have picked any one of six different numbers. Yes. By rolling it randomly. Correct. But you picked five this time, right? <laughs> you did, huh? I did. All right, now, this is uh, something that's akin to magicians. <laughs> I don't have to be the one to do it. Go ahead, do it again. Roll the die. Yeah, let's time. do this again because that uh, is, Now uh, you're interested. Yeah. yeah. And put your hand. Uh, look at the number. I did. And it's a random number. You could pick any number. Yes. And I'm going to let Todd give a shot at it. I think... You know, what's interesting is... It's basically the same number you looked at, but one better. Is it, was it a six? Yes. Okay. You guys <laughs> are absolutely amazing. I don't know how you did it. I'm looking at you. You both turned away. There's no way you could have seen the die. Plus, the die is actually lower on the desk here. Well, 
okay. It, 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 there's a CIA drone that has, <laughs> that has uh, infrared X-ray above the building. We have friends in Washington. You know, they can't do this alone. Uh, so That's incredible. You guys are absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, you know, it, it, basically what Michael said about being a child and the idea is that you can't instill a sense of wonder in other people unless you have a sense of wonder in your own soul. Well, what you're also doing then for people is you're also making them feel like kids again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just me experiencing this just brought, you know, this rush of energy and excitement. Yeah, it, 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 it just livens up life. We have the greatest job in the world. Yeah. Every day we wake up and we do what we love to do. Beats working for a living. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. We're very grateful. And yeah. uh, if people aren't internet savvy and they want to get tickets to our show, they can call Brown Paper Tickets, which is the most cost-effective way to get our seats, and that's 800-838-3006, and they're 24-7. So Brown Paper Tickets, 800 838 3006. And Todd, the website one more time. Is mondaynightmagic.com. Todd, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. That was Michael Chout and Todd Robbins of Monday Night Magic. The show occurs weekly at the Players Theater in Manhattan at 8 p.m. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Can't get enough of our show? You can find more of our programs online at wfuv.org slash cityscape or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My thanks to producer Zach Zalis. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.